Well, if you haven't turned there already, turn with me to 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 16. 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 16. We're resuming our series through the book of 1 Timothy. I'm going to review really quickly in just a moment. But the, the question raised in this passage today is, what makes a good minister? Uh, now, don't answer out loud. <laughs> What makes a good minister? I mean, most Christians have some thoughts about that. And for many, or at least for some, their concept of a good minister is formed by their past experiences with a particular pastor who was, in in their experience, just a really good pastor. And so the, the, the qualities that they appreciated about him are the things that they associate with what makes a good minister. Um, for others, they think of the profile of like a good executive or a good organizational leader. And that's more and more true in the contemporary church. And so you could find lots of pastor job descriptions in our day and age that reflect that sort of thinking and language, that, that sort of corporate executive business leader type language. So you, you, might, you might even see uh, churches doing pastoral searches that want uh, a pastor who is entrepreneurial, a creative, visionary, has a proven track record of success and growth and those kinds of things. And, and those can all be um, advantageous qualities to have for a pastor, but it, the, the, the language itself and those kind of qualifications and criteria really reflect more of a secular corporate kind of mindset. And that seems to be the mindset behind one article that I found online um, as I was just perusing pastor job descriptions and job searches and that kind of thing. Not because I'm searching, by the way, but because I was doing research for this sermon. Uh, but I found one um, website that advised churches on the subject of conducting a pastor search. And here's how that article opens. Trying to find the perfect pastor might seem like a never-ending search that just leaves you settling. So why can't you find the right person? Most of the time, The problem is the pastor job description. Uh, Most of the time, the problem there is you're looking for the perfect pastor. Uh, And that's a dead end right to start with. But I digress. Um, If, they say, if if the pastor job description is not engaging and descriptive, you might not be attracting the right people. Once you master the fine art of writing the perfect pastor job description... It'll be much easier to find the right leadership for your ministry. Well, all I'll say about that uh, is I would recommend churches look elsewhere for advice on conducting a pastor search. But there is a sense in which uh, many churches do have a problem with their pastor job description. There's a sense in which the pastor job description is the problem or a big problem. But the problem is that they have a different set of priorities for the minister than Jesus has. And we learn a bit about what his priorities are for the minister in this morning's sermon passage. And so I've titled the message, Priorities of a Good Minister. Priorities of a Good Minister is from 1 Timothy 4, 16. And let's stand together, if you're able and willing, uh, as we read with careful attention to the Word of God. 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 6, reading out the English Standard Version. Hear the Word of the Lord. If you put these things before the brothers, 
you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially for those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we do thank you as always for your true and living word. And we open our ears, our hearts, our minds to receive the truth and life that it contains for us today. Lord, would you be so gracious to give liberally of both truth and life to us. You know the needs that we bring uh, even the ones that we don't need, know that we've brought. And so, God, we pray that you would minister to those by your sovereign grace. And so we ask that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. And Lord, move me out of the way as always. And use my voice as an instrument to communicate to your people. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's be seated. I get to do that with you now. Well, you may recall, it's been, of course, a number of weeks since we left 1 Timothy. But you may recall Paul had written a letter to Timothy urging him to remain in Ephesus to confront the false teaching that had been circulating there and to correct it because it was causing so much trouble, so much disruption and disorder in the church. And so as the letter opens up and brings us to this point, he's reminded them of the simple gospel message. Um, he's offered some guidance regarding men and women in the church. You may remember in the opening uh, first half or so of chapter 2, he outlines the qualifications of elders and deacons um, in most of chapter 3. And then... In the opening verse of chapter 4, which is where we left off last, he warned that some among them would depart from the faith. They would abandon Christ altogether. They would, they would abandon the faith, walk away from it entirely because of the false teaching that was circulating. But then in between there, the, the little section of three verses that I, I didn't refer to, back in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul actually stated his reason for writing the letter. And you may or may not remember that, but let me read it uh, just to jog your memory. He said, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, 
you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave or how one ought to conduct yourself in the household of God. The church is the household of God. And one of the problems we have in a contemporary American church is we have made it out like it is our household. And we've made ourselves so at home in the household of God, we've just made it out to be ours. So we've made some renovations in the house. We've rearranged the furniture, changed the landscape, and let the hunting dogs in the house, into the parlor, onto the sofa, put our feet up on the coffee table with dirty shoes on, you know, all those kind of things. Just, just made it out like it is our very own. And, and many, of, uh, many of us in the contemporary church seem to think it doesn't matter at all what things were like in the first century church. Even things that, that, that the Bible speaks to pretty explicitly. That basically we can just rearrange it however it's suitable to us under the, the sort of mantra, as some say often, that the message stays the same, but the methods have to change. That's often what you hear um, said just in Protestant evangelical circles. The message has to stay the same, but the have to, methods have to change. Well, that's actually true in lots of ways. Um, but it has limits because part of the message is how the household of God is to be conducted and how it is to be ordered and a whole lot of other things about how we are to worship and so forth. And so, Timothy is charged with pushing back against much of that misunderstanding and deception and so forth and working to set things in order. And he talks about, Paul talks about what the, his role is as a minister and servant in these verses that we just read. And the bookends of the passage in verse 6 and 16, they really sum it up for us. Uh, so we're, we're helped to start there to even frame out what it is we're reading and understanding in this passage. And verse 6, first of all, gives a direct answer to my initial question, which was, what makes a good minister? Well, he says in verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant, or in some translations, a good minister of Christ Jesus. The Greek word for servant there is a word familiar to us, um, it's the word diakonos, the word from which we get the word deacon. And again, it most often is translated servant. Minister is uh, an appropriate translation of, of it as well. But the pastor is a servant or minister of Christ. So he ministers to people, but on behalf of Christ. And so it may help to, to sort of picture a butler who serves the master of the house, if you will, the lord of the house, the owner of the house. But he serves him by serving the rest of the household, the residents of the house, and the guests of the house. He serves on behalf of the master, at the direction of the master, in the authority of the master. He serves how the master wants him to serve, He's a minister in that respect. You think about um, cabinet ministers in other countries. We don't really use uh, that language in the U.S. We have secretary of 
housing and education and things like that in the president's cabinet. In other countries, though, there may be a prime minister and then minister of finance and minister of housing and minister of defense and so forth. They serve on behalf of the head of state and they serve the people in whatever capacity they're called to. That's what a minister is. But what makes a good minister is if he sets these things before the brothers. What things? All these things he's been talking about. All of this good guidance that really protects and transmits the gospel faithfully. That makes him a good minister. And verse 16 then summarizes how he is to do that. Look with me there in verse 16. It says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The NIV there says, watch your life and doctrine closely. What makes a good minister is if he sets good guidance before the church. How does he go about that? Fundamentally, summarily, it is to keep a close watch on himself and on the teaching. And so putting that together, I want to look at three priorities of a good minister. Number one, a good minister gives guidance to the church with his life. Number two, a good minister gives guidance to the church through his teaching. Number three, a good minister gives guidance to the church for their salvation. So let's unpack it uh, under those headings. Number one, a good minister gives guidance to the church with his life. Number one, by being an example. It says in verse 12, in verse 12, let no one despise you for your, for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. You know, at the outset, this sounded like a really easy question and an easy task to accomplish. Yeah, if you set these things before the brothers, you'll be a good minister. Got it. I can do that. By the way, pastor, you need to set an example in what you say. That let there be, let, let not coarse jesting uh, be known among you. Let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth. No idle speech. Set an example. And all the ways believers are supposed to speak and not speak, you go first. You set an example. Let your words be with grace always seasoned with salt. Your conduct, your love. Love the people well, Timothy. Love them thoroughly. Love them even when they don't love you back. Be an example and in faith and in purity. So a good minister gives guidance with his life by being an example, number one, by being a steward. He says in verse 14, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Be a steward of the gift that you have. Do not neglect it, Paul says. He doesn't even say what that gift is. Presumably, it has something to do with the teaching and preaching that he's now charged with carrying out. That he has the gifts necessary 
to do what he's charged to do. But I do want to emphasize uh, a couple of things about that statement. That number one, the charge to the pastor is don't neglect the gift that you have. Be a good steward of the gift or gifts that you have, not the gift that someone else has that you wish you had. Pastors are not immune from that kind of comparison and envy of their neighbor's gifts. Uh, But don't neglect the gift that you have rather than concerning yourself with the gift that you wish you had. The other corollary to that is be a good steward of the gift that you have, not the gift that somebody in the congregation thinks you ought to have. And there would be something in the way of instruction there uh, for the congregation of any church that um, what any church member and what any congregation ought to ask periodically is not why does this past, why is this pastor not more gifted in such and such an area, but why did God send us a pastor with these particular gifts that he has? That might be a better question to ask because the charge to the minister is to steward the gift that you do have. So be an example, be a steward, and then third, he's to, he's to give good guidance with his life by being disciplined and diligent. So it says, in, in three different places, it, it speaks to the issue of being diligent and disciplined, working at this. In other words, we don't become mature as Christians or, or especially as ministers by just sort of basking in the sunshine of God's glory until we sort of arrive at this nice golden copper-toned tan of Jesus-likeness, you know. That somehow we just, we just bask in the glory of God until he changes us into what we uh, are supposed to be. But we're supposed to labor at growth in him. Be disciplined and diligent. Now let me point you to the text that make that point so you don't have to take my word for it. First of all, verse 7. Train yourself... For godliness, he says there, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is in value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The word uh, train here is the Greek word gymnadze. It looks like gymnase or gymnase. It's the word from which we get gymnastics or gymnasium or gymnast or that kind of thing. It's an athletic term. And so you see in a couple of translations, it says, exercise yourself unto godliness. I think the King James probably reads that way and maybe the New American Standard as well. But it is work at it. Work at being godly. And, and there, again, there's tension at this in understanding that in our pursuit of holiness, there is holiness that is just credited to us. It belongs to us because Christ is holy and we are in him. And there's also a holiness that we are to pursue 
and strive after, the Bible tells us in other places. And so godliness is something we are to work at, and yet God has to also be working in us. There's a tension there, which could be another whole uh, sermon or series of sermons that I won't linger there. But, but you train yourself for it. He says in verse 10, To this end we toil and strive. And then in verse 15, Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Timothy, give good guidance to the church by being an example, by being a steward, by being disciplined and diligent. Not only Timothy, but every minister who aspires to be a good minister. The second thing he says is that a good minister gives guidance to the church through his teaching. So first, he gives guidance to the church with his life, that he exemplifies it. And then second, he gives guidance to the church through his teaching. And again, I'll, I'll break this down unto, uh, into four headings or under four headings, that, he, that, that his teaching should be um, delivered with truth, with authority, with clarity, and with devotion. Okay, so first with truth, you saw, you saw, again, we just brushed over it in verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Uh, the word there, and it's actually translated, I think, in maybe some other English translations, old wives' tales. These silly myths would be the kinds of things that people would, would tell their explanation of any number of things about how life works and how the universe is ordered and so forth. Just old wives' tales that have been passed down uh, that way. But, but they have no grounding in the truth of the gospel, in the scriptures, or what have you. And the more and more we depart from the scriptures as our source of authority, the more and more we loosen our grip on it, the more likely we are to tend toward irreverent and silly myths. I, I, uh, I saw this, a, a Christian comedian who, who sort of illustrated this in a way it was kind of unintended. And some of you may have seen this video. There's this Christian comedian. He's pretending to be a pastor giving um, a post-game press conference. Uh, so sort of like a football coach would do after a game. So he's given his Monday morning press conference. And he's, he's talking as if he's a coach in front of the press. But he's a pastor recapping the Sunday morning service. And it's, it's just humorous in a variety of ways. That he's talking about that. But when he refers to his sermon, he, he, he speaks of, the scriptural tie-in. He says, my scriptural tie-in could have been better or whatever. Now, he didn't intend to make the point I'm making. But what it revealed is that he's, he's probably been to enough modern church services. He's heard, heard enough contemporary sermons to pick up on the fact that a lot of contemporary preaching is not grounded in the Bible. That there's a scriptural tie-in, but the message itself stands alone apart from the scriptures. That the topic... And its points are derived from somewhere else. Um, it could be a self-help talk that you found in any other secular, non-Christian video. It could be on the self-help shelf on the, on, at Barnes & Noble without any reference to Christ, the gospel, the Bible, or anything else. But it has a scriptural tie-in. Now, I'm certainly not laying that charge at anybody's feet or pointing to anybody and, and implicating them in that way um, on any specific level. 
But there is a lot of modern preaching that because the message is actually sourced somewhere outside of the Bible, um, it tends toward irreverent, silly myths. And we ought to guard ourselves there and ensure that as ministers, our teaching is grounded in the truth. Secondly, that our teaching is delivered with authority. Verse 11 says, command and teach these things, but command these things. Now, this is kind of an interesting one to meditate on a little bit because the exhortation to command implies that there is authority to issue commands. That it's not just teach, it's not just advise. It is, Timothy, command these things. And in our current cultural setting, we've really cast aside authority in most areas. Like, we're pretty anti-authoritarian. We don't like um, authority figures in terms of actual positions of authority. We don't like that anybody presumes to speak as if they know more than we do because we've got access to enough information. We can fish and find the information we can want. We want, we we can find the information that tells the story the way we want to hear it um, and essentially render ourselves um, experts on whatever subject. So we don't really like authorities. We don't need authorities. But the minister of Jesus Christ, remember that's what Paul says Timothy is, a good servant of Christ Jesus. The minister speaks with authority because he speaks on behalf of Christ. So he speaks with truth and with authority, third with clarity. And I I really just pass quickly over this to say, he says not only command these things, but teach these things. And he refers, I think probably two other times to teaching in this Um, in this passage, that the task involves communicating information and explanation that leads to an understanding, a proper understanding of things that then affects how we live and worship and relate to one another. So teach with clarity. And then finally, to, to teach with devotion. So he says in verse 13, Until I come, devote yourself or give attention to, give careful attention to, in in maybe another translation, the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Devote yourself to that. Pour yourself into public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. It's almost a rhetorical one because I hope it's obvious by, by now. But does it seem to you that Timothy's pastoral ministry, that he's charged with carrying out, does it seem to you that that ministry is supposed to be very word-centered? Uh, well, it seems very much that way to me. And since I'm grading your paper, if you answered otherwise, you get it wrong. And uh, so we'll, we'll move on. Teach with truth, with authority, with clarity, and with devotion to, to the public reading of Scripture's exhortation and teaching. And then the third uh, sort of quality of a good minister is that he gives guidance to the church for their salvation. He does it 
with his life. He does it through his teaching. And then thirdly, a good minister gives guidance to the church for their salvation. You know, when you talk about doctrine, and that is, uh, it's rendered that way. Again, in the NIV, I think verse 16 says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. When you talk about doctrine, uh, there are always some who will say, you know, that's just academic stuff. It's cold and stale. You know, nobody really is interested in that. Doctrine divides anyway. You know, so it's a source of all kinds of squabbles. Who really cares? What practical difference does that make anyway? Well, actually, Paul predicts that there will be a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. He gets to that in 2 Timothy toward the end of the letter. And he says, to preview that, in case we, our, our whole schedule gets redirected and we don't end up in 2 Timothy, let me uh, preview that or remind you of that, that he says, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. And so, Timothy, give them sound doctrine. That's basically what he says in a nutshell. Preach the word. It's profitable for doctrine. That's what they need when they'll no longer put up with it. So that's a little bit of a parenthetical statement anyway. But more immediately to the point, what difference does it make? Well, he answers that right here. He answers it in plain black and white. What difference does it make? Look what he says in verse 16 in the second half of this. The way he closes out. This whole section, persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Pay close attention to the teaching, Timothy. Pay close attention to your doctrine, Timothy, because the gospel is in there. Even if that gets obscured sometimes, and even if people think they don't want to hear it, the gospel is in there. That there is not good news apart from a clear understanding of who God is, and who man is, what sin is, and what salvation is, what God has done in, in providing a way for man to be saved through the sacrificial death of Jesus and his resurrection who, who Jesus is, what he has done. All of that is doctrine. And while it can sound very academic in, at times, it is the gospel. And it will save both yourself and your hearers. The salvation of souls is at stake in the soundness of our teaching. And that's why it matters to me so much about the condition of the church in general, in general, when you see the, the professing believers just fleeing from what they've been urged to hold fast to, it's because the salvation of souls is at stake, and not only now, but generations from now. It's curious that even he says you will save both yourself and your hearers, that, that the you know, salvation is spoken of in the New Testament as... as um, something that was and is and will be. There's a past dimension of it to it, a present dimension to it, and a future dimension to it. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin altogether. And so there's some sense in which it appears that the, that the sound teaching that Timothy's being urged uh, to deliver will be a means by which he and others persevere in their faith to the very end. 
but another sense in which people who have never been regenerated, never born again by the Spirit of God, will hear it even while they sit in a pew after years and years of sitting in a pew or a chair or whatever that might be, sitting in a church where they've been for years and have never really been born again. And if they hear the sound teaching of the Word of God, sound doctrine where the gospel is contained, um, it may just one day be the truth that the Spirit of God uses to awaken them from death to life and indeed to life eternal. So I'll just conclude by saying, I mean, there, there are surely, as, as I said in the beginning, there surely are no perfect ministers. But those of us called to the office of minister, the office of pastor, can aspire to be a good one. And we do so by putting these things, the guidance, the instruction, the gospel itself, faithfully before the brothers with our life, and with our teaching, and for their salvation. And those in the congregation who call ministers would be well advised to understand what it is a minister is charged to do, not only uh, so that they can call wisely when that time uh, arrives, but more to the point um, that they who are being served by the minister can help him do it with joy and not with groaning, as Hebrews says. And so we're thankful that God has made clear, that Jesus has made clear what his priorities are for a good minister. Uh, let's let them be our priorities as well. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, I do thank you for the great privilege of being called to the role, to the office of being a minister of your word. God, would you help me personally to be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Would you help me, Lord, to train myself to godliness, to toil and strive after it, to persist in it, to immerse myself in it, to take care of my life and of the doctrine. Lord, to be faithful in all the ways that are outlined here. And God, would you stir in the hearts of our congregation just a deep delight in those same things. Lord, that what you have charged the minister to offer, that those receiving would receive it gladly and joyfully, faithfully, and that they would respond obediently to it. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.